Hey podcast listeners, Jim Siegler here for Brainwaves, a podcast about neurology and medicine and all the fascinating science and history that come with it. It's almost 2020, and as I've looked back on the show, it's really incredible to me how far we've come since the show originally launched back in 2016. The 10th episode that we put out, a show all about cryptogenic stroke, is almost 100% outdated at this time. So I've completely rewritten the show and replaced it so that everyone can listen to the most up-to-date information. To give you a sense of the progress that we've made, in early 2016, cryptogenic stroke was very poorly understood, and its heterogeneity, in my opinion, underappreciated. By 2019, we had new, very clearly defined mechanisms of occult cerebral infarction that extend beyond the traditional TOAST criteria, mechanisms like non-stenotic plaque and atrial cardiopathy, conditions we'll talk more about this week. We talked about PFO at that time in younger people and cited three major clinical trials that evaluated PFO closure as a means to reduce the risk of recurrent stroke. Those trials, which were published before 2016, all showed no significant benefit with closure, and there were only complications with treatment. Now we have four newer trials which have reversed this understanding. We talked about the importance of looking for paroxysmal AFib, which I think is still important, but the data is less clear as to how these patients should be evaluated and treated. And speaking of treatment, what about the empiric treatment of these patients with cryptogenic stroke? For now, aspirin still has its footing as the drug of choice in patients with ESIS, which I'll talk more about. But there are other compelling data that we need to look at closer in future trials. So lots to talk about today, and we'll cover all of it in the next 25 minutes. Let's get right into it. I want to start by getting everyone on the same page as to what cryptogenic stroke means. A cerebral infarction is considered cryptogenic when the underlying stroke etiology has not been identified. So whether the workup is incomplete by AHA standards, or whether you've looked into every possible known cause of stroke and come up with nothing, both of those situations would lead to a cryptogenic stroke diagnosis. Historically, as many as 30% of strokes have been cryptogenic. Unfortunately, older patients are more likely to have cryptogenic stroke compared to younger patients on the basis of incomplete diagnostic testing, while younger patients are more likely to have cryptogenic strokes due to occult thrombophilias, clinically relevant PFOs, or some sort of cryptogenic vasculopathy. Looking back at data from the Northern Manhattan study, 55% of patients younger than 45 were ultimately diagnosed with cryptogenic stroke, so very common, especially in the younger population. In thinking about the potential occult mechanisms by which stroke occurs in these patients, we still reference this important clinical differentiation. Does the patient have ESIS, or is it not ESIS? By ESIS, of course, I mean embolic stroke of undetermined source, which is the heterogeneous construct that was proposed by Bob Hart and colleagues back in 2014. Pathologically, clots from ESIS patients, when you look at these clots' composition under a microscope, they look identical to clots taken from the blood vessels in patients who have cardioembolic strokes, and they don't look anything like the thrombiocene in artery-to-artery embolism. So, because of this, clinicians and researchers trudge down the path of looking for occult cardiac mechanisms. In 2017, the Reveal AF investigators prospectively evaluated 446 patients at 57 centers in Europe and the U.S. who had a CHADS2-VAS score of 3 or more. They implanted a cardiac monitor in each patient to capture the burden of paroxysmal AFib over time, All patients did not have AFib at the time of screening. What the authors found was that, by six months, a fifth of the included patients had some degree of AFib, and by two and a half years, 40% had AFib. 
But how much AFib do these patients really have? And is it clinically relevant? And how long should we really be monitoring these patients? These questions are very important. According to data published out of California by the KP Rhythm Study, more than half of patients who had occult AFib had a burden of AFib of less than 5%. And the burden of paroxysmal AFib directly correlated with the risk of subsequent thromboembolic events. Among patients in the lowest tertile of AFib burden, the annualized risk of embolic events was 0.7%. Mind you that historic data has informed us that patients with persistent AFib are at an annualized risk of stroke of about 6%, so 0.7% pales in comparison. Patients from KP Rhythm in the second tertile of AFib burden, they had a 1.1% annual risk of embolism. And the third tertile, 3% annualized risk. So, still lower than our historic controls, Maybe we're doing better at risk factor modification and primary stroke prevention, but maybe it's that paroxysmal AFib puts patients at a lower risk of stroke than persistent AFib. Anyway, this gets at the first question of how much AFib do these paroxysmal AFib patients have? The answer is that most patients have a less than 5% burden. But how long should we be looking for it? Well, the longer we monitor, the greater the odds that we capture something. For the time being, AHA guidelines say 30 days of monitoring is reasonable, and they recommend that you do this in patients over the age of 40 with a cryptogenic stroke. If a large number of ESIS patients were due to unrecognized paroxysmal AFib, again, some of the data I just referenced indicates 20-40% to of patients with ESIS may have paroxysmal AFib, then anticoagulation would be superior to aspirin for the secondary stroke prevention in these patients. For reasons that are as disappointing as they are perplexing, treating ESIS patients as if they had AFib with anticoagulation, it doesn't seem to reduce the risk of recurrent stroke versus aspirin. Not one, but now two randomized clinical trials published since 2016 have proven that a direct oral anticoagulant, either rivaroxaban or dabigatran, was not superior to aspirin for chronic secondary stroke prevention. The RESPECT ESIS and NAVIGATE ESIS trials were wholly negative in their primary aims. What's more is that the annualized risk of stroke recurrence from these trials, which enrolled a total of more than 12,000 patients, the risk of a second stroke was about 5% per year. So the empiric escalation of antithrombotic therapy to an anticoagulant was no better than aspirin, and it may not be that conditions like paroxysmal AFib are responsible for embolism in these patients. Furthermore, as you'd expect, the bleeding rates were higher on dabigatran or rivaroxaban than on aspirin. In a similar line of thought, among these ESIS patients, we see a variety of other findings more often than we see in strokes with other, more defined mechanisms. Atrial cardiopathy is one of them. In patients without a clear mechanism of stroke and no AFib, we see enlarged left atrial chambers, higher NT pro BNP levels, and a larger P wave terminal force, all of which are physiologic biomarkers of left atrial stretch. Maybe it's this kind of atrial cardiopathy that predisposes to clot formation. Or what if it's even this atriopathy that predisposes to AFib, and AFib is just a biomarker of atrial cardiopathy? In these cases, these cases where we're rethinking the proximate indication for anticoagulation, perhaps anticoagulation may still be better than aspirin. The ongoing Arcadia trial is planned to answer that question. Now, what other occult cardiac abnormalities are there which can predispose to clot formation? And which of these may or may not be treated with a more targeted approach? As you know, and as we discussed in 2016, PFOs are found in 25% of the world's population, 
and we tend to see them in a higher frequency among patients with cryptogenic stroke, and in particular, patients with ESIS. A PFO can serve as an interatrial conduit for a venous thrombus to enter the systemic circulation, and a second, less well-accepted hypothesis suggests that PFOs are inherently thrombogenic themselves, and they can increase the risk of non-bacterial vegetations on the left side of the opening. These vegetations can become liberated during diastole as the left ventricle fills and ultimately enter the systemic circulation. Both of these mechanisms have been implicated in epidemiologic studies, which found patients who have cryptogenic infarcts were six to seven times more likely to have PFOs than non-cryptogenic stroke patients. So, closure of PFO in these patients was proposed. By 2016, three trials had been published, which showed no benefit of PFO closure for secondary stroke prevention. And a 2015 Cochrane meta-analysis of these trials showed there was no significant difference in recurrent stroke risk for patients who underwent PFO closure. One trial, however, did show some early promise. The RESPECT trialists, in their per-protocol and as-treated analyses, which looked at patients who actually underwent device placement or not, demonstrated a more than 60% reduction in the risk of recurrent stroke with the Implatzer PFO occluder. But this was not their primary analysis plan, so the FDA said, wait a minute, let's just wait for longer-term follow-up data on your intention-to-treat population, then we'll consider your device. After a mean follow-up of 5.9 years, the RESPECT investigators had their answer, and there was a statistically significant and a clinically meaningful 45% risk reduction of recurrent stroke with PFO closure, with a hazard ratio of 0.55 and a p-value nicely at 0.046. At the same time that the long-term RESPECT trial data was published, the Gore reduced trialists also published their results. Using a helix septal occluder, patients with a PFO and a cryptogenic stroke under the age of 60 would be at a lower risk of clinical and silent infarcts, a related trial published out of France and Germany, called CLOSE, also demonstrated efficacy of PFO closure with any device over aspirin. Now you'd think that that's all you need to know. There's a PFO, you should close it. Well, not exactly. Much like we can stratify patients who have AFib based on their vascular risk factors for their risk of cardioembolism using the CHADS2VAST score, there are some clinical tools that we can use to determine the attributable risk of embolism to a PFO. Again, PFOs being so common, are you really going to try to close every PFO you come across? You might have heard of the ROPE score, which is the risk of paradoxical embolism score, and it's kind of the inverse of the CHADS2VASC score. Basically, the older a patient is, and the more vascular risk factors they have, the less likely that a PFO is thought to be related to the stroke precisely because the stroke is more likely going to be related to traditional risk factors. Next, there are some other features about the PFO that give it a higher risk. The presence of an atrial septal aneurysm, which means there's excess atrial mobility and likely promotes the intracardiac thrombus formation. Or if the PFO shunt is particularly large, meaning there are a lot of saline bubbles that cross it, or it's physically larger, say more than 2 millimeters in diameter by ultrasonography. All these features are higher risk for PFO, and according to data from RESPECT, these features may drive the benefit of closure. So, there was this one trial, the DEFENSE PFO trial, which targeted patients with these features. The investigators randomized only patients who had a cryptogenic stroke with a PFO and one of these criteria, an atrial septal aneurysm, excess atrial mobility, or a large shunt. And they confirmed the effect that was seen in these earlier trials. With PFO closure, no patient experienced a recurrent stroke by two years, 
In contrast, the medical arm had a 10.5% risk of stroke over that two-year period. Now, while this is all very exciting data, we should be aware of some important periprocedural complications with closure, notably the risk of developing AFib, which is about 5-7%. to So, nothing's perfect. Enough about the heart. ESIS can't all be due to occult cardioembolism because the respect ESIS and Navigate ESIS trials would have shown a benefit of anticoagulation over aspirin, right? So after cardiac causes are thoroughly excluded, what other conditions should one consider? Thrombophilias are another big category, and many should also be treated with anticoagulation. The way that I conceptualize thrombophilias is two broad camps, heritable or acquired disorders. Among the heritable thrombophilias, sickle cell disease ranks among the most common, with one in four sickle cell patients experiencing a stroke by adulthood. In adults, the diagnosis of sickle cell is typically known prior to their stroke presentation. However, in children, this may not always be the situation. Sometimes, the diagnosis can be inferred with abnormalities in laboratory testing, an elevated LDH, low haptoglobin, or an indirect bilirubinemia, or a personal history that's concerning for sickle cell, For instance, unexplained periods of chest and bone pains or recurrent infections. This diagnosis is often suggested by a peripheral smear, and it's confirmed via hemoglobin electrophoresis. In contrast to sickle cell disease, sickle cell trait, which can cause venous thromboembolism, is not strongly associated with stroke. After sickle cell, factor V Leiden and prothrombin gene mutations should be considered. That being said, despite the relatively high frequency of factor V Leiden in the population, which is the most common heritable thrombophilia, maybe 5% of Caucasians have this mutation, there's actually been no direct association between these disorders and cerebral infarction. Other thrombophilias would include antithrombin-3, protein C, and protein S deficiencies, and I would check these levels usually a few weeks after the stroke. Considering the acquired thrombophilias, malignancy should be at the top of your list in an adult, especially in patients who have antecedent B symptoms, Typically, we think of adenocarcinomas of the lung, the GI tract, and hematologic malignancies as cancers which pose the greatest risk of venous and arterial thrombotic events. But nearly any malignancy can be implicated. These patients benefit the most from treatment of their underlying cancer and anticoagulation with low molecular weight heparin therapy, although DOACs are being increasingly used. Experts typically recommend that anticoagulation be continued indefinitely or until the cancer is considered cured. But cancer is honestly not that uncommon in patients with stroke. So when do we know if the stroke is due to a primary lung cancer from a long-standing smoking history, or if the stroke is due to small vessel disease from chronic tobacco use? A couple of interesting observational studies have been published on this matter. It turns out, among patients with cancer, those with cancer and other obvious stroke mechanisms, like poorly controlled diabetes, carotid atherosclerosis, atrial fibrillation, Those without these mechanisms, they're more likely to have elevated D-dimers, and this probably reflects the blood's propensity to form and break down clots in the setting of a hypercoagulable state. So checking a D-dimer and seeing if it's elevated above 2 or even 5 milligrams per deciliter, this has been reported in multiple observational studies as a reasonable biomarker to implicate a known or occult malignancy as the cause of cerebral infarction. Antiphospholipid antibody syndrome is another acquired thrombophilia that's worth considering. Not only is it the only non-malignancy-associated thrombophilia which we know benefits from anticoagulation, it's also the most common non-malignancy-associated acquired thrombophilia. Screening for antiphospholipid antibodies includes serologic testing for anticardiolipin antibodies, B 
beta-2 glycoprotein, and lupus anticoagulant. And diagnosis of antiphospholipid antibody syndrome is confirmed by the Sapporo criteria, one clinical venous or arterial thrombotic event, and one confirmatory lab test that's made at two different time points, which have to be between 12 weeks and 5 years apart. Now, you're probably thinking many of these conditions are optimally treated with anticoagulation, but ESIS patients as a whole don't benefit from anticoagulation. So what other mechanisms are we missing? There's a whole host of non-thrombotic genetic disorders like Catacil and collagen vasco disease, and autoimmune or inflammatory disorders like Suzak syndrome and sarcoidosis, vasculitis, which can predispose to a stroke, but they're treated entirely differently. Catacil and its recessive relative Caracil are quite uncommon, but they should be considered in young patients who have recurrent strokes, and especially for Catacil, patients with migrainous headaches, despite best medical therapy. MRI in these patients is of high utility in identifying the progressive leukoencephalopathy that's seen in these conditions, which, for Catacil, has a predisposition to involve the extreme capsule and especially the anterior temporal lobe white matter. White matter disease of those anterior temporal poles would be extremely atypical for other causes of small vessel ischemic disease, so that's often where I look to rule in Catacil. Notch 3 genetic testing can then confirm your diagnosis. Much more rarely, in cases of Caracil, one would find an HTRA1 mutation, which is diagnostic. A mutation in type 4 collagen, COL4A1, causes recurrent lacunar and retinal infarcts, and this ultimately progresses toward a leukoencephalopathy that's similar to Catacil. Next, we've got Zuzak syndrome, which I mentioned briefly, but this is an unrelated microangiopathic autoimmune endotheliopathy that's characterized by a triad of branch retinal artery occlusions, encephalopathy, and sensory neural hearing loss. MRI findings almost always demonstrate areas of T2 prolongation in the corpus callosum, which is extremely atypical for strokes to be found, given the redundant vascular supply of this particular white matter. Suzak syndrome should definitely be considered with colossal lesions. Treatment often involves aspirin and some sort of immunosuppression. In addition to these autoimmune and non-inflammatory vasculopathies, there are dozens of other conditions that increase risk of stroke, and they may not be identified on a standard workup. They probably don't even come to mind immediately. And the mechanism by which stroke occurs in these situations may be extremely unusual. For instance, homocystinuria and MELOS can result in direct cytotoxic neurologic injury, whereas Fabre's disease and sarcoidosis may increase the risk of cardioembolic infarction via an infiltrative cardiomyopathy. Sarcoid can also cause a small vessel vasculitis. Marfan's and Ehlers-Danlos type 4 collagen disease, in contrast, would increase the risk of cerebral infarction via a cervical artery dissection. Intracranial lymphoma, primary angitis of the CNS, and amyloid angiopathy-related inflammation often cause deep subcortical infarctions that accumulate rapidly without appropriate steroid therapy. So looking in better detail at the heart and the blood vessels and the brain parenchyma can all be telling in these circumstances. So all this being said, what are we left with? Honestly, a lot more questions than answers. And if there's anything you should take away from today's program, it's that patients with cryptogenic stroke, especially ESIS, are at a high risk of recurrent strokes, 5% per year with best medical therapy. That's almost what we see in patients who have AFib. And anticoagulation is no better than aspirin for the empiric treatment of these patients. It is crucial to be sure that you complete a workup in these patients, 
which means looking for occult AFib, even if we don't know whether or not someone with 6 minutes of AFib would benefit from anticoagulation over aspirin. It means looking for non-stenotic plaque of the cervical and intracranial vessels. It means looking for that PFO and risk stratifying it based on the size and the presence of an atrial septal aneurysm. Once you do these things, and you're still not left with an answer, my typical practice is to treat them with low-dose rivaroxaban and aspirin. And now here is some interesting data. My decision to use low-dose rivaroxaban and aspirin stemmed from the COMPASS trial. The COMPASS trial was a massive multi-center international randomized clinical trial testing the efficacy of rivaroxaban over aspirin for patients with stable peripheral arterial disease. So patients had to have either asymptomatic carotid stenosis for more than six months, stable CAD, or stable peripheral arterial disease. 7% of included patients had carotid stenosis. In the trial, patients were randomized to rivaroxaban 5 mg twice daily, which is different from the standard dose of 10 mg daily, 2.5 mg twice daily with aspirin at 100 mg daily, or aspirin monotherapy, and the patients were followed for an average of about 2 years. While there were more major and minor bleeding events in patients treated with full-dose Riva or the half-dose Riva and aspirin groups compared to patients on aspirin, the low-dose Riva plus aspirin patients had a significant 24% lower risk of MI, stroke, or cardiovascular death over that two-year study period. And specifically with stroke, there was a 50% reduction of ischemic or uncertain strokes with the combo over aspirin. And now here's the cooler part. The combination of low-dose Riva and aspirin was associated with a significant 70% risk reduction of ischemic strokes due to ESIS. But what I have to mention is that this was not a secondary prevention trial. Treatment was aimed at the primary prevention of a vascular event in moderately at-risk patients. Even so, there were far fewer ESIS events while on the combination therapy. And for that reason, I'll at least consider the combo therapy in patients with ESIS who have either coronary disease or peripheral arterial disease. It's really amazing that a lot of this has only happened in the last three years. It's been a pretty incredible journey to watch all this information roll out and to see how differently we are treating patients now than we did in 2016. Anyway, that wraps it up for our show. I hope that you were able to learn something from it. And if you're just tuning in for the first time, please let us know what you think about Brainwaves by rating it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Brainwaves podcast was produced out of Studio 3 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania by myself, Jim Siegler. The original 2016 version of the show, which was great, but you may not find anymore because it's so outdated, was also produced by Dr. Noah Levinson, who is now at Temple University Hospital in Philadelphia. Music for this program was courtesy of Josh Woodward, Julie Maxwell, Dan Leibowitz, and this group called Ease Jamie Jams. Sound effects by Mike Koenig and Daniel Simeon. For more information on what was discussed, please take a look at the show notes. It features references to the major trials and resources that you may want to take a deeper dive into so you can better understand some of the topics that were discussed. In the next few weeks, we've got some great shows for you about what it means to see a bright DWI lesion, a case of a patient with progressive hand weakness, off-label clobazam, and what the new checkpoint inhibitors may mean for a neurologist. Until then, I'm Jim Siegler. Talk to you soon.